welcome to White Wine Question Time, the podcast that asks its guests three thought-provoking questions over three glasses of wine. And my guest this week is one of the true mothers of reinvention, a choreographer and performer who became one of the ultimate talent show judges you love to hate. But now he's up sticks and changed his entire life in the most meaningful of ways. Kicking off his career on stage in his native Australia at just 16, he went on to perform in a list of award-winning musicals from West Side Story to Oklahoma, Chicago and My Fair Lady, to eventually becoming immortalised in the 1998 film version of Andrew Lloyd Webber's Cats. And if that wasn't enough, he quickly became one of the most sought-after choreographers in the business too, working for the likes of Kylie Bjork, Seth Elton John, Dame Shirley Bassey and high five share so it was no surprise that tv quickly came calling first as queer eyes uk culture expert in the early noughties and then as this morning's fashion presenter before taking his bow in the role you know and love him for dancing on ice's resident mr nasty where he served as a judge for over a decade before calling it quits in 2019 nowadays things could not be more different following the pandemic and the closure of his one-man show in the closet he turned his focus to something a little closer to home, saving the planet, reinventing himself as a, wait for it, nomadic permaculture designer. I know, I don't know either, let's find out and dial up Jason Gardner. <laughs> what the hell is a nomadic permaculture designer? Hello, Kate. It's so great to hear your dulcet tones again, my darling. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it's a good question and um, it's a bit of a story. Uh, I didn't know what permaculture was. I had no clue about it. And it was during the first lockdown here in London where mm. I... I, I, I make no, um, you know, I, I make no sort of apologies about it. I suffered very badly with my mental health during that because it was yes. the first time I wasn't working. I had a whole tour of my one man show, which I know you came to with Gabby. Um, I did. And, and, and it's, it's a show that you spent four years making, hadn't you? Yeah. Yeah. You were playing in the West End of London. You had huge plans for it. And then yep. the pandemic happened and pandemic happened and we all shut down. So so I, I really suffered during that time, as I know a lot of people did. And it was my neighbour, Jen, um, who has an allotment in Barnes. And she said to me, look, I think you could do with getting out of the house. And back then, if you had an allotment, you were allowed to go outside to work on the allotment because it was it was vegetables. So you were producing food. So you were allowed permission to do that. And Jen was doing permaculture on her allotment. And I was like, well, what is that? And so she started teaching me what permaculture was and it transformed my life. I ended up getting there at like six in the morning and I wouldn't leave until the sun went down, you know? And then we started transforming her allotment into something that was absolutely glorious. And we produced the most food on our allotment than any others because of employing the permaculture techniques. So what we've found is that we are able to mimic a lot of what nature does in the way that it produces food. And so we learn those systems. We learn all, like I can diagnose and treat soil now. Can you believe it? Who even are you, Jason Gardner? I know, I know. But, you know, it, it has changed my life, Kate, because it really allowed me to uh, connect with nature again. I came from Australia um, and I kind of was... I, I was kicking and screaming and running away from that life. And I, I loved the, the, the joy and the thrill of a big city and a metropolis, right? 
And now what's really interesting is coming back to London, which I have done a couple of weeks ago, I'm finding it claustrophobic. I can't cope with the hustle and the bustle of a big city and I can't wait to get back to my rural life in Portugal. Yeah, I really can't. Um, Why Portugal, Jess? What made you go there? um, Well, do you know what, Kate? That's a really interesting story. I did my permaculture design course in Spain, in Andalusia. And then I got offered to come to Faro to set up a kitchen garden for a German-Dutch couple who wanted to get self-sufficient because they were expecting a child. And I tried unsuccessfully to get home to my own home country in Australia during the pandemic to be with my family. My mother suffered a series of strokes. So it was very, very stressful. And my country closed our borders. So I was one of 60,000 stranded Australians across the globe that even our government wouldn't allow us back in. Cut to Portugal. Um, Because of my social media posts where I was showing that I was rewilding and doing all this conservation work and helping the the natural habitat in in Portugal, they offered me residency. Wow. Right? And so I decided to sell up what I had, what I could liquid, you know, um, liquefy my assets. And that's when I decided I'm going to go off and be nomadic for a little while just to see what happens in this world because we didn't, I mean, you couldn't plan for anything back then. We just didn't know what was coming next. We didn't know how long this was going to take. So I thought, I don't want to be trapped, you know, um, paying the extortionate amounts of money that I was paying to have that nice lifestyle that I could afford while I was gainfully employed. You know, so I did all budgets and, you know, costings and I was just like, okay, the best thing for me to do is to go off, try and get home. I couldn't get back home. So then I went off and got and did, I got a qualification in permaculture design. And I've never looked back, Kate, honestly. It was, it was one of the greatest gifts I think I've given myself in my life. I, do you know what? I commend you, Jace, because so many people just would sit and, you know, kind of wait for the phone to ring or for the cavalry to arrive in a, in a moment like that. And there's nothing wrong with that either, by the way. But the fact that you were so tenacious and so determined to reset yourself, I mean, I commend you. Which kind of brings me nicely to my first question. Are you ready to dive in? I'm ready to dive in. I want to talk to you about new beginnings and big, bold decisions. Because the last few years for you ultimately have been defined by two major decisions. The first, your choice to step back from Dancing on Ice in 2019. And then secondly, uh, the move to Portugal to completely reinvent yourself and pursue ecology as a profession. So talk me through these big life shifts, why they were necessary, what they've brought to your table and the lessons you've learned from them. Oh, I love that question. It's wonderful. Um, Okay, so Kate, um, Dancing on Ice, let's start with that one first, because I think there's you know, there's a lot to unpick with that, right? And I don't really, I haven't really spoken about a lot that went on with Dancing on Ice and why I left. There was a lot that went on in the series of 2019 when there was Gemma Collins on the show. And there was that on-air accusation where she said that I had sold stories 
to her, about her to the press, which were completely false and unfounded. Um, so long story short, instead of getting supported by my producers and ITV, they backed Gemma because she threatened to leave the show. So I effectively was hung out to dry. They wanted me to apologize to her. And I just said, look, this is, this is crazy. This is absolutely crazy. I've done nothing wrong. I literally, every, every year, I sit down with either the son or, or, or the male or whoever, and I do a big um, interview about Dancing on Ice and my thoughts. And this is, you know, I've done this every year pretty much since the show's been on. And so that's what my, you know, my story was about all of the contestants. But she, being the way she is, she really thought it was all about her, you know, and it wasn't. It wasn't at all. It was about the show and all the contestants. And I have an opinion on all the contestants. Now, it's, it's you know, I'm not going to say anything out of turn here, but she was very, very unprofessional during the entire run of Dancing on Ice. There were, you know, it's well documented, even with Phil and Holly, that she would keep us all waiting for hours and hours just because she didn't like her hair and makeup. You know, so there was a lot of things that she did that I I took offence to. I wasn't the only one, but a lot of us took offence to, including Torval and Dean, Holly and Phil. We were just like, this is unheard of, that an entire studio everybody waiting and she won't come out to do anything because she wants her hair and makeup done again, you know? Um, so, wow. And that, and that was that indulged, Jace? Was she yes, allowed to do that? It was absolutely indulged. And that's the problem. Surprised. I, I was really surprised, but I think, you know, what I do realize is that sometimes they indulge these kinds of things because they know it's going to create an atmosphere it's going to create tension and these shows really work under the premise of there being a lot of tension you know and and they get it. it's more fiery isn't it so she was worked up we were all pissed off because we'd ha- we, you know most of our day was waiting for her to you know come out of hair and makeup and then when she you know when she got on to set she decided that she didn't really want to partake in in anything that she would just sit and watch. So, you know, they, they really indulged her in a lot of what I call very, very bad behavior. And, um, and it escalated, you know, and, and she has a rather big ego. And also she's fraught with a lot of insecurities. So that's a very, you know, volatile combination of person. Um, and as a choreographer, I'm used to working with big personalities and people with temperaments. Um, you know, some might even call them divas, but I've never felt, I've never felt people um, to be unprofessional and I've never, ever had that kind of problem with anybody that I've worked with. Um, and so really, this was quite shocking to me that somebody was allowed to be so unprofessional. Anyway, long story short, we, we got to a point where um, I was I was approached by my lawyers and they said, look, you have a, a very strong legal case because she has accused you of something that is defamatory um, by nature. And if you want to pursue this, we would happily, you know, we would happily uh, write a letter and, and get the ball rolling. 
I spoke to my producers about it and I said, look, you know, I'm, I'm really seriously thinking about this because if you're not coming out to back me up saying that I didn't do this, what has been left out there in the public domain is that I've sold a story on Gemma Collins and there's been no pushback from ITV or the producers of Dancing on Ice to say this is not true. This is an actual fabrication and she should never have accused me of that live on air. That didn't happen. Instead, what happened, Kate, is um, an hour before we were to go live, um, the big wigs, four of them from ITV, all came up to the studios, piled into my dressing room, and I was given the ultimatum. If I was going to pursue any legal recourse against Gemma Collins, because she's terrified that I'm going to do this, that they would fire me from the show. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But that's surely your right to push back if you feel that you have a case of defamation against your character. Not according to ITV and the producers. They said that actually because I was under contract as a judge, that if I was to start legal proceedings against her now or in the future, it would jeopardise my impartiality as a judge on the show. Could you see their point with that? Of course I could. But what I said to them is, well, of course, I'm not going to start it right now. But certainly I want you to know that this is something I'm thinking of because I do have, I have to do something to repair what damage has been done. And so I did want people to think that I go around selling stories. I mean, that's the last thing you want to be known as in the industry. It's not my form. I've never done it. I will never do it. Um, and so to be accused of that live on air in front of millions of people and then the pickup in the press, you know, just propagates it more and more and more that you get to the point where it's like, I, I, I have a right of reply and ITV were not allowing me to do a right of reply. They said that it would just be making a mountain out of a molehill, but it wasn't their name. It wasn't them that were being attacked on social media. It wasn't them that were being accused, of, you know, by Piers Morgan and all these other people of being, you know, of fat shaming and selling stories um, to, to, to the press. And so I was in a very, very difficult place. Mentally, it really upset me because I was just being bombarded. I had paparazzi outside my house for the whole two weeks trying to get, you know, photos and harass me. You know, so the knock-on effect is massive, as you know. Um, it's huge. And people don't understand the, the personal impact that that has on your life. So this coupled with other years of you know, a lot of turmoil and no backing from ITV. I thought, you know what, Kate, I'm at that age now. I'm in a place in my life where I only want to do the work that I enjoy doing. I only want to work with people that I enjoy working with. And I was very lucky. I was in a very privileged position um, where I could pick and choose. And it was while I was away in Vienna, I was doing a, a big workshop. It was called a six element workshop where I where you start working with the different elements um, and and your breath work and things like this. And it was it was really groundbreaking for me because I'd never done anything like that. I, we started on the Monday. We were going right through until the Sunday. On the Wednesday, I got a phone call from ITV to say, what is your decision? Are you coming back or not? And when they say, sorry, Jace, when they say, are you coming back or not? Does that mean, are you coming back because you've decided not to take action against Gemma Collins? 
was was that the ultimatum that you felt you were being presented with? And also, can I ask, why did they not publicly back you? I'm sure you asked that question. What response were you given? Their, their response was that they didn't want to wage in on something that, as far as they was concerned, was trivial. It was a trivial matter. If they waged in on it, all of a sudden it would become more weightier than it needed to be. And that, you know, um, today's news is tomorrow's chip paper was their kind of attitude about it. Um, not knowing that I was the one that was bearing the brunt of it in the streets, um, you know, other other you know, like loose women, also um, Good Morning Britain, they all picked up on it and they turned it into something much bigger than what it was meant to be. And that's why I was saying, look, I would agree with you if all of this other stuff hadn't happened off the back of it. But because it has, I really feel like you need to step in and you need to quash this once and for all. And it just would have been very easy for ITV to just say, look, we know that there was no, you know, even the son who I did that interview with, you know, and they don't never, they never normally come and back you. But they even called up and said, we will go on record to tell you that we never pay Jason to sit down and do a story on Gemma Collins. So I even had the the son ready to you know to back me on it but itv just said no we're not we're not touching we're not getting involved we've got a show to do so they call you on your retreat and say what's your decision and you say and i had an epiphanous moment where i knew that if i went back i was opening myself up to the same abuse um and that's exactly what it is it was abuse and so i said right i'm not a victim of abuse I'm not going to put myself in that position ever again. And as tough as it was, because, you know, I'm not going to lie, it was a good salary. It was a good gig. Um, but sometimes you have to make decisions not based on finances, but based on your mental health and your well-being. And that's what I, I decided to do. Well, you know what, that makes you a very wealthy man in so many ways. The fact that you're in a position to be able to make that call. Um, and uh, can I just ask... How, when you say it was abuse, how do you qualify that? Because that's quite a big statement. I just want to be clear on how you've qualified that you felt that it was an abuse. Because when you're in a position that I was in, where you're, 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 you're controversial, yes, but I never, ever did anything that brought the show into disrepute. You know, there was many challenges with Ofcom, but Ofcom always came back and said, he hasn't done anything wrong you know, people are just overreacting. This is, you know, he hasn't contravened any sort of Ofcom regulations. So I knew that I was always on the right side of controversy. But when things like the contestants with, you know, I mean, it's not just Gemma Collins, there were other contestants in, in the past, where I have been accused of, you know, things that were just completely wrong and, uh, and false things like being called a racist by Sharon Davies. Now that, how I got called that, let's say it's, 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 it's quite a twisted story. I still can't believe that she arrived at me being a racist because of a comment that I made about her. I'm not going to go into that because it's very, very sensitive. Um, but there was many sort of situations over the years where I was hung out to dry, as it were, and I wasn't supported. And yet, by the same token, 
I was very encouraged by the producers to keep doing what you're doing because you're bringing in the viewers, you're also bringing in the press, right? So I was in a very difficult position of getting abused for doing what I was doing and then getting praised by the producers to continue to do it. And then when things got too hot, they would drop me. So I was in this constant flux of confusion. I didn't know where I stood from, you know, contract to contract, because every year they would bring me in, we would sit down, they would have that discussion, you know, are you going to be able to keep this fresh? Are you going to be able to keep doing the job that we want you to do? And I was like, well, I'm just calling it as I see it. I don't see that, you know, that I wouldn't be able to do it. So the choice is yours. So I was never, ever in a position where I felt comfortable on that show. And they kept it that way. Um, And then, of course, when they got very heavy with me, giving me ultimatums and really going against things that, you know, there's protocols. They never involved my agent. There was none of that. They just came into my dressing room and they were very, very heavy in their ultimatums of either you do it our way or we're going to fire you. So the mental anguish, that's a form of abuse. So your decision was, it's, it's time for me to go now. It was, it was toxic. The relationship that I had with my producers and ITV had now become untenable. It was toxic. And I, I couldn't deal with it anymore, Kate. That's the truth. I just thought life is too short. I've got too many things that I want to do with my life. I don't want this to destroy my mental health. And it was really starting to, it was really impacting. You know, when you have heavyweights like Piers Morgan berating you on national TV, the fallover from that, you know, I was getting more death threats. I was, I was worried for my life because, you know, there was, there was more acid attacks that were happening. You know, those kind of things you start worrying about when you're a public figure. And then it becomes this paranoia. And I thought, I've got to stop this. And it's my choice for putting myself in that spotlight and in that position that is causing this knock-on effect. What do I need to do? I need to cut out that toxic environment and that toxic job and get on with my life, whatever that looks like beyond Dancing on Ice. But I had a great life before Dancing on Ice and I knew I would have a great life without it. But you know what it's like when you're in these big shows. Well, you know, look at look at uh, with, with X Factor and stuff. It's you're in this bubble and you really feel like it's the be all and end all. It is a bubble. Yeah. yeah. Well, you do. And then you step out of it and you quickly realize it's really not. And, and I think perspective is everything. And um, it's very hard to, 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 to retain a good, healthy perspective when you are A, so consumed by it. And the, the bit that makes it everything is the fact that everywhere you go, people talk about it. So it's not like any other job where you just leave the office and you pick up when you go back through the door of the office the next day. It's everywhere. You know, you can nip to the garden centre and people go, you were a bit harsh on so-and-so last night. So I understand how it can feel very consuming. But I also would also be the first to say, it's a moment, it's a bubble, step away. The world is big. It's full of opportunities. This is is a minute in your life when you look back on your deathbed and go, oh, that was mainly fun. You know, and I'm sorry for you that it ended badly. But I hope that you get to a point with it where I certainly did, where I can remember all the good bits and just try to part the bad bits. I think I'm definitely there now. You know, I mean, having gone through this whole change 
And, you know, I spent, I've spent most of the past two years completely isolated in rural settings. And so it gives you a lot of time to think and to reflect. Yeah. And, and, and I'm, I, I agree with you. You know, I'm starting to remember all of the good times, all of the good memories and the laughs that I've had on that show. You know, it was an amazing show. Um, and I, I loved being a part of it, you know, but um, now I think looking... It's a divorce, isn't it? Is it is a divorce. The the day, Jace, that's what it's, it's like. It's exactly that. It is, and it's very public. Can I just ask, you know, when you, you raise the issues with ITV and the network and the producers around your mental health and how you were being impacted and there were death threats, as a, as a network that are very much campaigning for mental health awareness and people talking about their mental health, especially men, um, what was their response back to you on that? Well, I think it's interesting. I think because I my stuff sort of happened before mental health became front and centre, you know, and I think subsequently they had to change. 2019, they'd already had, you know, they'd already put on the top of the ITV tower figures of men to highlight the fact that men of a certain age are the most likely to commit suicide. So I, I, I don't know. I think that actually that campaign work had begun way before that. But I don't think it had trickled down, you know, and certainly not to me at that point. And, and that was where it was kind of conflicting. On the one hand, they're, they're pushing this narrative of, of men and men's mental health. And then on the other hand, in real terms, I was not getting any help whatsoever. I mean, not once did they say to me, how are you doing through all of this? You know, and they could, but because for them, at the end of the day, everybody was talking about the show. So there's no such thing as bad publicity. It's good publicity for them because everybody was talking about the show. It was driving interest in, oh, what's it going to be like next week, right? But what they don't care about, and certainly they didn't express that to me, was what kind of a hellish two weeks I had to go through um, during all of that as it played out in the press, on TV shows, in the news. You know, so it was, it, it just, they never once checked in with me, Kate. So I don't know what all that was about, you know, your, your mental health men's campaign on the one hand, but certainly when it came down to dealing with talent, somebody that you're working with, I nothing was in place for me. They didn't reach out to ask if I was okay, to see how I was doing and what support they could give me. Not once was that offered. So does, does that frustrate you slightly when you think, for example, of something like the incident with your colleague, Philip Schofield, who was extended all of the support that he needed as he went on air and came out? I mean... You know, I, I'm I'm happy that Philip had that support, you know, because, to, yeah, because to come out, especially late in life and with such a profile and presence that he has, that's not an easy thing. And rightly so, you know, you, you need that support. Um, would have I liked it? Yes, I would have liked, you know, when you think I was with that show since the beginning from 2006, you know, that's a long time where you're building these relationships with, with these people. And those, you know, the people at the top were the same players that, that, that were there pretty much from 2006. So we, I knew them very, very well. And, um, and, when, and that's, I think, what hurt me the most is that these people that I built up, you know, years of working relationship with, they were more than just colleagues. I thought that we had, you know, 
we had a personal friendship as well now. And yet, as soon as there was too much heat, I was, I was completely hung out to dry. They did not care about me and what I was personally going through at that time at all. It was more about, this is great, we're getting lots of publicity, and we're sorry, but we're not waging in on this. Because they wanted it to play out. If they had have come up with a statement to say, no, this is not correct, Jason did not sell a story, the Sun can corroborate this, um, it would have been dead in the water, but it was it was in their best interest, the show's best interest, to let it play out and become the storm that it became. So you feel that that they put headlines ahead of protecting you and what you had proven to be uh, by way of the case, which was I had not received payment for an interview that I did with The Sun. Therefore, Gemma Collins' claims are unsubstantiated and defamatory. Please back me. Yes. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's yeah. it in a nutshell, though. Yeah. In a nutshell. Yeah. Yeah. So that puts a, a, a big full stop on what had been a glorious run. But then I'm sure at that moment, because listen, I've been there, when you're looking around you and going, shit, what next? I think sometimes necessity becomes the mother of great invention. And here you are with this second phase of your professional life in Portugal, um, doing something that you're clearly passionate about. So talk me through the importance of that. And, and, and as you look back now, are you happy that it's happened? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think you're right. Uh, if it wasn't for, you know, a series of events, you know, starting You wouldn't with, have done it. No, I wouldn't have, wouldn't have done, done it. it. I wouldn't have done it, you know. Um, and I'm so grateful that now I had all of those, you know, what you could consider, you know, bad um, experiences that then shape you onto the right path. And that's what I love about a bad experience. What we consider a bad experience is actually you being moved onto a path that you probably wouldn't have chosen to go on had you not have had that bad experience, right? So I'm really thankful for bad experiences more and more. I embrace them now and I don't shy away from them because I think they're, they're just, they're there to help you reflect and repurpose yourself sometimes in another way. And the great thing about when things, you know, break and shatter is that you can then decide which pieces you want to pick up again. You don't have to pick up all of the pieces. You can just take what you want and then start adding to it with other things. And that's kind of what I felt like I did. I shattered into a million pieces. And then I thought, right, what pieces do I really need and what pieces don't serve me anymore? And that's what has been great about this past two years is I feel like I've slowly rebuilt myself where I feel more secure and solid within myself with, with who I am, what I'm doing. And I feel this profound sense of connection to nature that is very nurturing, much more nurturing than the entertainment industry, I can assure you, or any of the, you know, you know, or any of the applause or the accolades that you might get or the awards that you might win. You know, those are all very fleeting. And as much as those highs are great, they're unsustainable. And what I like now is that my life is a lot more sustainable and grounded. And yeah, I still have those great moments where, you know, but it's not on the same scale, you know, and I'm happy with that. You know, I don't need millions of people to know what I'm up to anymore. I'm really happy with my, my patch of earth 
and being completely sustainable, harnessing natural energies and growing my own food. And now, you know, building it into a, an eco resort, which is the next phase of what I want to do so that other people can come and heal or find themselves or find a connection to, to, the, to, to nature again and to themselves by stripping back and becoming more sustainable and more conscious about what they're doing and their carbon footprint. Yeah, you were, you were living between two extremes. And actually what you found, by the sounds of it, is a really happy middle ground. Yeah. Yes, and that is by getting into the ground, <laughs> getting my hands into the ground. I've exactly. found middle ground. I love it. There you go. Grounding. It's all the rest. <laughs> Are you ready for your next question? Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Let's talk difficult truths because it's something that you became known for, um, you know, straight talking, no mincing, um, your critiques to people and applying the same kind of honesty that would exist in an audition room uh, within your industry. But you were also very quick to point out that you've been on the receiving end of many of these across the course of your life. And sometimes they can be the making rather than the breaking of you. So I wondered what have been the difficult truths that have been the making of you? Okay, so when I was younger, um, you know, growing up in Australia in the 80s, um, I, I wanted to dance and boys just did not do that. You know, you did your footy, you did your cricket, you did your soccer, you did your hockey, but you were not. I mean, it was just inconceivable. Um, so I remember when I was told that boys can't dance, boys don't dance. I then took it upon myself to find a local dance school and I was I, I went there on the sly every Saturday morning to take ballet class and so it was yeah it was me being told no I'm somebody that when you tell me no or that I can't do something mm. it fuels me to want 
to go and do it and prove you wrong. So I love a no, I love a can't, right? Because then that's that's all I need. It's like a, you know, a red flag to a bull. I have to like, I have to go for it then and either fail, but at least attempt to do something about it, right? Um, so that was one. Um, the other one was that I would never make anything of my life because I was a young, effeminate little boy. I was bullied heavily at school. You know, they even, I was even stabbed in the back, you know, um, at school during a geography class with a, with a compass. Yeah, they, they stabbed me in my back and I was the one that got expelled for making a noise in what? class. Yeah, honestly, it was awful because oh I was a different, I was a different boy, you know, now I would, you know, I would fit in no problem. But back then, you know, boys had to be boys and girls had to be girls. And so if you were anything other than that, especially where I grew up in Australia, very closed, very small minded town, um, then your life was hell. And, and you deserve to have a hellish life because you were a freak. You know, I didn't want to play sports. I didn't even know what, what um, you know, when they called me poofta, I didn't even know what that was, but I knew it wasn't a good word because I was too embarrassed to go back home to my mum and dad and tell them because of the shame that I knew it would bring, you know, if I told them that I was being bullied. So you didn't go home and say, um, yeah, of course, so that's even worse. Oh. Yeah, so you're not telling anybody, you're just dealing with this quietly. And your parents, I mean... Were, were progressive, they were helpful, you tell me, did you have a good, solid home life? I think that's, that's a really difficult question to answer because on one, one part of it, yes, uh, we were, you know, we, we never had to worry about anything in terms of a roof over our head and food on the table. Um, but was it a happy home life? No, it wasn't. You know, there were, there were a lot of problems, let's just say, that, that were happening at home that I didn't want to add to. And I was the eldest son and I was also adopted. So, you know, there were so many, I felt so insecure all my life because I didn't feel like I had any solid ground. And if I wasn't perfect, if I made too much, uh, you know, if I made too many problems for my family, I lived in this fear that somehow I would be sent back to the orphanage, which is completely nuts. I mean, it's completely nuts, but when you're a kid, well, yeah, because that's what you believe. You know, I, I, I you know, I, I watched Oliver Twist and I believed that, you know, somehow I was going to end up like in some Dickensian orphanage again if I wasn't a good boy. So your parents, what led them to the orphanage? Well, I, it was really because my mother was told that she couldn't conceive children. And, um, and she really wanted to have children. She was one of those women that was just wanted to be a mum more than anything else in the world. And certainly back in the 70s, that's kind of what you did. You got married and you had a family. Um, so when they couldn't conceive, um, it became the next option for them. And then you went on, they went on to have more children. Was that via adoption? Um, you, you tell me. So this apparently is quite a, a, a regular phenomenon women that were told that they couldn't have children after they adopt fall pregnant because they're not worried about it anymore. You know, wow. they actually just enjoy sex for sex wow. sake. So apparently when you are enjoying sex for sex sake, you're more likely to fall pregnant. 
and when you're trying to have children. So that's a little lesson for most people out there. Have sex, don't try and have children. (laughs) (laughs) So they had how many biological children of their own? One, one. And it was a, he was a very complicated v- birth. Right. And, and how was that for you? Because, I mean, obviously you were probably quite small when he arrived in your world. But as you get older and you realise that, that you are adopted and he is not, is that a difficult truth in itself? A little bit, yeah. Absolutely. Um, you know, what's, what's really telling, and I don't remember any of this because when my brother um, came into our lives, um, I was only two years and ten months old. So, you know, I was still a a little boy, but I was very talkative. And so mum was mum, but my dad, I would only call him Keith, which was his name. And apparently I couldn't... Why? I I don't know. I mean, you would think Keith is harder to say than dad. But no, I said Keith first. Oh, Keith! Because I guess... He wanted to be a dad so bad and you still call him Keith. Well, I I blame my mum because it was all I was hearing her was her call him Keith. So I wasn't hearing dad. You know, Um, and so, but interestingly enough, and this just goes to show you how young you must feel things. But when Jamie came home, my my brother, when they brought him home from the hospital, that first day that he arrived home, I started calling my dad, dad. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? I find that really fascinating. Yeah, up until then, he was Keith. As soon as my brother came home, he became dad. And I think that was the beginning of me really feeling like I could be sent back if I wasn't a good boy. And he couldn't because he was there. Wow. He didn't come from an orphanage. Wow. I mean, your childhood, you talk about it being a happy childhood, but sometimes in an unhappy home. Was that a difficult truth? Yeah, it was because, you know, my, my, my father, you know, he battled with alcoholism and, and so there was problems around that when you're a young kid, you know, and being the eldest, sometimes gotcha. you would feel the energy change in the house. And I, I could, you know, that's why I guess I'm so sensitive now to an energy in a room or when I meet people is because I was attuned to that from such a young age of knowing whether or not dad was going to be in a good mood or whether he was going to be in a bad mood, depending on, you know, how much he'd had to drink. Um, and his, you know, his sort of demons happened because he was, uh, he was a, a, a really outstanding fireman, a firefighter. And they were um, at an accident. It was a part of a, a and it was, it was in the news and everything, but part of a, a bridge had a cement over, you know, overpass had collapsed and it had landed on this family of four. The parents were killed instantly but the weight of the the concrete um uh pylon that had fallen um was now starting to bear down on three children that were in the back so they had to there was so many firemen that were turned out that what they did because they couldn't wait for cranes to come um and and lift off because by then the children would have been crushed there was about a hundred of these firemen they all pushed to lift the pylon off so that they could use the jaws of life to get the kids out. And my dad was one of those firemen that was shouldering the weight of this concrete pylon. When he got back to the station, he had a massive heart attack because of the pressure that it put on his heart. (gasps) And 
when you're a firefighter, you can't be on active duty when you've had a heart attack because of the stress yeah. involved. You know, they just... So he had to get superannuation out of the fire brigade. And he, he was only 34 and he didn't know what he wanted to do. And oh, so wow. he, um, he ended up turning to alcohol, yeah. which was, it was sad. You know, at the time I didn't know oh, any of that because yeah. I was too young. But when you get older and you become of an course. adult and you look back and you think, God, that's what, that's what triggered him. That's what, that was the beginning of the end for him. That is so tragic, Jason. Yeah, it is. Is he still, is he still with you, your dad? He is, you know, he's still, he's what we call, he's a great Aussie battler, that man. You know, he's, uh, he has stopped drinking for a very long time now. So he's been very, very clean Good. and sober. Good. Um, he's cleaned up his act. But in terms of, you know, his outlook on life, that that moment definitely broke him. You know, it changed his life completely. Oh, Jason. Well, I'm I'm glad that you you're able to look back and find the the character building, um, and the strength that you you drew from those experiences. But it can't have been easy. It really can't have been easy. Um, which maybe that's why you're so adept at making huge big jumps and leaps and changes, as we're seeing now, as you become a Portuguese landowner and perma. Culture. culture farmer yes. have i got yes, that right absolutely that's exactly it yes, yes well done kate you did it you smashed it <laughs> thanks i go to the top of the class next question right, go on <laughs> my third and final question you are a man of many surprises, as we've established, but sometimes life comes along and knocks you off your feet. It provides you with some of the biggest surprises that you just didn't see coming, but they turn out to have genuine value, as we've discussed already on this podcast. Um, I wanted to know from you what has been life's most valuable kick up the bum, slap in the face and big surprise. Oh, uh, wow. There's been quite a few, but I think the biggest surprise that I've had is within myself in that I can adapt to anything if I put my mind to it. The only thing that has held me back is the way I see myself. And if I see myself in a limiting way, then I will limit what I can do. But when I've opened my mind, when I've opened my heart to the possibility that I am so much more than what I give my credit, what I give myself credit for, then that's when the biggest surprises happen. That's where the greatest joy comes in that uncomfortable moment of not being sure of whether or not I can do something, but then doing it anyway, and then finding that I've now expanded. And I love that about life because unfortunately I spent a lot of my life um, being pigeonholed, being labeled. You're a dancer, you're a West End performer, you're a choreographer, you're an ice skating judge, you know, you're a bitch on TV. All these kinds of labels that then define you. And even if you don't agree with a lot of them, they define who you are. You start to become yourself as reported as opposed to as you want to be. And we all do that in one way or another. It's about how other people label you. And sometimes you just need to kind of, you know, wipe that clean and relabel yourself yes, as you are doing. And that's exactly right. You, you, you do become um, what everybody else expects of you to become. Even if you think I'm an independent person, actually you're not. We're um, 
quite conditioned by our environments and we're quite conditioned by what other people think of us, even when we think we're not. And so it's, it's really when you strip yourself away from all of that, like I have done, and then you realise, who am I really? Like, what, what is it that makes me really tick away from anything that is associated with me? And that's, that's what's been interesting coming back here after being out of London for two years. I've kind of had a slight little identi identity crisis because everything reminds me of that old life. And now I'm changed. And so it's like I've come back and I feel like I'm having out of body experiences all the time while I'm meeting people and friends. It's like, I feel like I'm in another dimension, but I'm here, but I'm not here because where I really resonate is back in Portugal on the land and in nature. And so as much as it's nice to dip into London and be back here and being able to, you know, talk with you and do podcasts and all this kind of stuff, um, where my heart lies now and my true authenticity is being in nature and living sustainably. I love it. I absolutely love it. And you don't have to suffer to live sustainably. That's the other thing I really want people to know. I mean, you can live really a gorgeous life, plenty, bountiful life that is abundant because you're not having to rely on energy prices going up. I don't have to worry about that. I can totally understand why you feel like uh, you've almost gone back two years by being here again. And actually, you are coming back. You're coming back to do Panto. So you have sort of had to concede that in order to fulfill your ambition, which is to be a landowner, to own an eco resort where other people can come and spend time with you and learn from you, you've got to bankroll exactly. that somehow. So as much as it's behind, as much as that old life's behind you, literally you're coming back it's because it's behind you. you. In Panto. <laughs> and, and that's what has been ultimately great about coming yeah. back, Kate, you're right, is that I have also seen the merits of being able to tap into my old life in order to, you know, to fill the coffers as it were. Mm -hmm. So then, then I can put that money into good yeah. use. Whereas before, it wasn't money going to good use. Yes, I bought properties. Yes, I did those kind of things. But I also, you know, I also, I wasted a lot of money, as you do, you know, going to restaurants or being seen at the right places or wearing the right clothes. I mean, all of that just means nothing to me anymore. And I never say that anything is forever because I thought my mm -hmm. old life was going to be forever you and know. then something happened yeah. and now it's a new life. But this next chapter, for however long it is, I am fully committed in embracing it because I know that this is where I'm meant to be right now. I'm not worrying about the past and I'm not thinking too much in the future. That's the other gift that I got about from this whole pandemic is I used to be so planned out years in advance. I had a five-year plan. Now I don't have that. I'm lucky if I'm working six months in, in advance. You know, the next thing that I'm going off to do, and that only came up a couple of weeks ago, is I'm off to Spain to do an eco-build. We're building a, a school, a full eco-build school. Yeah, me with other volunteers, and we're going to learn off these master builders in Mata Venero in Leon, Spain. I leave next Friday, and I'm gone for four weeks, completely <laughs> off-grid, no communication, and I'm going to be building a school from scratch. Wow, high five to you, my friend. Thank you, darling. That's amazing. So, I love it. I've got one suitcase to my name, and it means that the possibilities of where I can go and what I can do are endless. 
And previous to this, I mean, did you did you know your way from one end of an IKEA flat pack to another? No. I used to get those people that used to come <laughs> and put it together for you. I paid them. You know, because I was thinking, well, I'm giving people work, so that's and a good look. thing. And now look, now I'm building houses from scratch. <laughs> Crazy. Uh, uh. But anything oh, is possible. Oh, it's brilliant, Jason. It is brilliant. Continued success. I know you'll be back. Uh, you're, you're spending the winter, uh, well, not the winter, you're spending the panto season in Barnstable at the Barnstable yes. Theatre. Who are you playing? I'm going to be playing Flesh Creep. So we're doing Jack and the Beanstalk. Let me get Flesh that Creep. I'm Flesh Creep in Jack and the Beanstalk in Barnstable over Christmas. Um, so it's a short run. It's um, only in December, finishes December 31st. And I would love everybody to come and see it because I can assure you my flesh creep will make your your flesh creep. That's for sure. He sounds lovely. <laughs> oh, he's, yeah, he's not, let me tell you. He's a piece of work. I'm sure he's not. A piece of work. <laughs> really good to check in with you. Really good to hear so many exciting and unexpected plans. You Thank are you. nothing but full of surprises. <laughs> Thank you, Kate. A huge thanks to my guest, Jason Gardner, for joining me on this week's episode. Uh, before we go, in response to Jason's comments about Dancing on Ice, in the first half of the episode, we did reach out to ITV for comment, but they don't wish to add anything further. We do know, though, that in June 2019, they published their Duty of Care Charter, which laid out the network's commitment to the mental and physical well-being of all people working for or with ITV. The same month, ITV Studios introduced throughout their content-making business refreshed processes and guidance to manage and support the mental health and well-being of programme participants before, during and after production. So that hopefully lends a little more context. If you want to hear more great chat with other terrific performers and talent show judges, then don't forget our back catalogue is full of fine episodes with the likes of Louis Walsh, Michelle Visage, Nikki Chapman, Shirley Ballas, Arlene Phillips, Gary Barlow, and many, many more. My thanks to you as always for lending us your ears to Ben Robbins and the Yahoo Studio team who produced the show with me. Editing is by Andy Angson and our music comes courtesy of Andy Bell. I'll be back next Friday with more great chat. Until then, thanks for listening. Thank you.